Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy or making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to ditch the red pen and begin ungrading. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is Jessica Zeller, a professor of dance. Lafayette College defines ungrading as an umbrella term for any assessment that de-centers the action of an instructor assigning a summary grade to student work. It can manifest in a variety of forms, but as we discussed in my interview with Jessica Zeller, ungrading means decoupling assessment from conventional ideas of evaluation and authority. While I've heard about ungrading in the past, this conversation finally made it click for me. I think it's because Jessica is an associate professor of dance. And when talking about assessing something physical rather than mental, I am better able to comprehend how ungrading really works. I can imagine how every dancer's body is different in a way that I can't see that every student's intellectual strengths are different. This interview was recorded in June, 2020, and I highly recommend checking out Jessica's website for her discussion on how she made the transition to online learning. As for me, I've yet to make the final step to embrace this framework, but after listening to this episode again and again as I was editing, I feel like I'm getting closer. I explore those thoughts and some resources on how ungrading would work in a language classroom on the Less Than Impossible blog, which I link to in the show notes. Good luck on your not-so-impossible lesson with Agent Jessica Zeller. Thank you so much, Jessica, for joining me and the listeners on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Do you mind just starting off and giving your own version of who you are and what you do and what your role is in education? Sure. Um, I am an associate professor of dance at TCU, Texas Christian University, in the School for Classical and Contemporary Dance. Um, I've been teaching ballet for a long time, but I'm primarily ballet faculty there. Um, I also teach classroom courses, like traditionally academic courses in dance, history, theory, pedagogy, um, sort of the, the brainy side of dance, uh, as well as the studio component of ballet technique. I studied in ballet as a child and uh, went to school for dance. Uh, both my undergraduate uh, degree was mostly in ballet and ballet performance and ballet pedagogy. And then my graduate degrees were in dance studies uh, and my MFA is in dance also. So it's, um, it's been a, a long road. I kind of have stayed with dance my whole life. So this is, it feels very much like my home base for understanding the world. I'm curious, having been in the world of dance pedagogy, whether it's as a student and now as a teacher, have there been major changes or have things pretty much stayed the same as when you were a student? You know, I, I think the dance world has been slow to adopt some of the understandings of the world that the rest of education seems to have come to a little bit more uh, quickly, I guess. Um, I'm thinking particularly in terms of 
there were some big promotions of some uh, high profile African-American dancers in in ballet just recently. Ballet has been very late to the understanding of what equity means. Um, And I I think education has done a marginally better job of that. Um, But it's, (laughs) you know, I think we, we all see it in our different contexts. Um, but ballet has been slow, and I, I am pleased to be part of sort of what the what the field is looking to do in terms of becoming more equitable and really looking at our biases and looking at why the field has been so slow to uh, make moves in that direction. So that transitions nicely into a question that I like to ask, which is, how would you define your pedagogical perspective as a, a dance and dance theory teacher? I kind of look at pedagogy as something that bridges the studio with the classroom. So I, I, I put most of my eggs in the basket of trusting students. Um, I think if I had to sum it up in two words, it would be trust students. And I know there are other um, pedagogues who I admire and who, who look at the world in a similar way. And we're all talking about how much trust we don't put in our students in a, on a, as we plan material um, as we design educational experiences. And I, I like the notion of just starting by trusting who you're in the room with and then allowing the experience to unfold from there. Um, I, I do that in the studio as much as possible. It's, it's hard to um, find ways to adapt a really old, I mean, ballet training has been around for hundreds of years. It's, it's interesting to try to find ways to poke holes in that tradition to really bring the students forward rather than silencing them uh, in the traditional way. And the same with real education, which used to be so much uh, lecture-based and it's so much more engaging and interactive now, um, that if we start with the students in kind of a more substantive way than just by saying we're going to flip the classroom or that we have student-centered pedagogy, but some real work that comes from the students uh, and is informed by our observations of where they are and what they need in terms of their education. So you put the assessment, as far as I understand, almost solely in the hands of the students themselves, and you're more of a guide for them to decide on their own assessment of what they need to improve, as well as even producing a, a grade at the end. Am I, am I correct? Yes, that's, that is correct. I haven't graded anyone in... Uh, a couple of years, I, and I, it took me a while to get there. But I, I, I try not to. I, I don't think. I, I think grades and learning are different things. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think. I don't think learning. I don't think grades have to be present for learning to happen. I think when you take the grade away, the learning is much more interesting and engaging. Uh, there's less of an external. I mean, there's there's just piles and piles of research from Alfie Cohn to Ruth Butler, um, all these other people talking about how how grades are basically an external function um, when it comes to learning. And I, I'm trying to get us to focus on the learning and the work. Um, and if that means that I turn over my, uh, like the authority of the red pen, you know, um, to a student, that seems like actually a much more, um, a much more significant level of work for them to be doing, to have to self-reflect, to have to really analyze the work that they did, the improvements that they made, their own growth. Um, I think it's much more beneficial for a student to have to do that for themselves than for me to do it for them. 
it puts the work of learning in their hands. And it also then allows them the opportunity to feel proud of themselves when they accomplish something that they've set out to do. Um, you know, that they're not deferring to my opinion or perspective on their work. And while I might have a valid perspective on their work, I share it with them in feedback. Um, so we are having a conversation, but the ultimate assessment comes down to them. And I, I find that that is a, I was surprised when I started doing that because they, if nothing else, they are honest about their own work and what they know about their own potential, um, which I was really surprised about. I thought, wow, you're giving yourself a B plus. That's astonishing. Like, I, I don't know that I would have given certain students the grades that they've given themselves, you know? So I, I, I've been really delighted, um, to see how some students, most of the students, uh, when I change the paradigm and take the, and, and give them their own red pen for themselves, um, to kind of see what they, what they come up with. And sometimes it's stuff I never would have imagined or predicted. Are they crafting their own assessments as well as assessing that? Or are you still giving them the projects and the criteria? They're just the ones that are, you know, highlighting on the rubric. So I um, stopped using rubrics. While I have aims in mind and, and I sit down and, and meet with them, and it sort of depends on the context. If I'm in a classroom course, this looks a little bit different than if I'm in a studio course. But say, say I'm in a ballet class, like an actual dancing ballet class in the studio. Um, I'll meet with the students early on in the semester and say, what have you been working on? Like, what, what were you working on in the last ballet class you were in? Do you want to continue with that? Do you want to try looking at something different? How are we going to, you know, what direction are we heading in? And maybe it's not picking specific things, but maybe it's just getting an idea together for like, okay, I know I need to, I know I need to get to this place with my dancing. So how, and I know I want to have this quality of it, or I know I need to, to really finesse this skill. And usually by the time I get them, they're, you know, 18 to 22 for the most part. And they are, are conscious of all of those things. They have plenty of information under their belt by the time they come to me. And so they can kind of guide that. And I, I sometimes will help them shape where I see they need to go as well. Um, and so we'll have a conversation about it and head in that direction, sort of in an open-ended way. And I, I think the lovely part of that, which, you know, by the way, is not something that the university or the education system at large is in favor of, because we all want, or they, they I say they, like anybody who wants to work from an outcome place um, if you set your outcome first and you target that outcome, then all of the learning that might happen by accident goes away. So I kind of leave it open-ended and say, well, we're sort of headed in a vaguely this direction. Let's work like this and see what happens. And then we adjust as we go and we see where we end up. But I think because there isn't the stress of, oh, I have to learn this thing. I have to make sure I get this thing done so that I can get my A, um, when you take that away, it can sort of have a life of its own. The learning sort of takes a shape as the student directs it and they can experiment and it becomes a little bit more, um, I want to say creative. And I realize that word is a little loaded, but it, it does, it becomes a, a much more interesting process to watch unfold because you never know where it's going to go. It's an improvisation. 
And do they have to show you any kind of like written work of their thinking when it comes to that assessment? They do. I, um, at the end of any semester with whichever kind of course I'm teaching, um, I do ask that in, if we're, if we're going to do a self-evaluation, it does need to be well articulated. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we do need to take the time to really sit and reflect and say, what did I learn? How do I know that I learned that? How did I show that I learned that? So what are, what are the ways in which I've demonstrated this throughout the semester? And then, you know, what are the ways I might've done this differently? I sort of offer them a list of prompt questions, um, that, that tend in the direction of product and process. So like, what were the products you came up with during this semester? What were the assignments that, you know, had a tangible product or the skills that you feel that you achieved or that you saw that you achieved? What were the things you did? And then how did you do them? And can you be metacognitive, can you be aware metacognitively of how you shaped your own learning process to get to that end? Um, and when they start rethinking that, I, I, I always ask them, like, would you have done it differently? Or what, at what point would you have taken a different path? And some, I, I think that learning is what our current system with grades and things, it doesn't capture that. It doesn't capture the student's ability to reflect on their own learning in any kind of substantive way. It just, it only credits the products. It looks primarily at the things you produce. And so when, when those are the only elements that are graded, of course, students are going to cheat. Like, why are we surprised? <laughs> like, you know, it's it, when you, when you design a grading system, you're, putting value on certain things over other things. And I think what I've learned in this process of ungrading is that I can value the process of understanding oneself. Like what do you learn about yourself as a learner um, and what you, how you think about what you need? Yeah. I have to admit listening to this, like everything you're saying sounds amazing and I'm nodding along, but it, it's counterintuitive to everything that I've been taught or that I've taught my student teachers. Like I've done self-assessments and, and put grading, but this idea of even letting go of starting with the end in mind, like that's one of the first things we're taught as teachers is decide what it is that you want students to be able to do and then work in your teaching towards that well, and I think there's something valuable in that, in that, in that it does, it does ask us to be intentional. And I think being intentional is important because you don't want to just sort of go in with nothing in mind to a, a learning space and say, well, we're going to learn something. We just don't know how to do it or what it is. Like, I don't think it's good to go in with no definition at all, but I, I do think there's something to let's start here and we will work together. And as we go along, we will uh, keep coming together when we need to make changes or adjustments or when something really interesting, like if there's a really great tangent, it's like when you uh, have a discussion in a class and a student starts going off on a tangent, you can either be the instructor who says, okay, let's come back to what we were talking about. Or you can say, keep going with that idea. Let's see where it takes us. <laughs> And sometimes some really fascinating things come up. And sometimes you get to, you know, by, by letting the students sort of take it 
you are really centering both their interests and their needs. Because as they land on things that they become curious about, I think that is part of their development as people. It's like, what are your, they're learning about themselves, they're learning about their areas of interest, and they may all diverge in different directions. And sometimes that's tricky. But I, I do think there's, um, we can loosen I, the backward design concept. I, I don't know where it came from. I don't know when it started. I want to say it's been within the last like 20 years or something, but the, the idea of outcome driven education to me is really narrow. I just think it doesn't allow for some of the more fun things to happen. What happens when you just really like you see something moving across the room, what would happen if you went and investigated it, you know, as opposed to, well, no, I'm just doing what I'm doing right now. Yeah. It's forward thinking design, I guess. Uh, Yeah. Well, it's just a little, I, I kind of think of it as an improvisation because you do have to stay on top of it. You do have to track it and say, okay, are we going off course? Are we getting lost now? Cause if we're getting lost and we have no direction anymore, we need to figure out where we're going to go. Like we need to come back together and say, okay, you know, what's, what's our goal or where are we heading? It's kind of like, you know, thank goodness for Google maps because nobody would ever know where they're going. But before that, before we had that, how did you get to where you were going? Maybe you had a paper map, which, which was a little bit looser. It didn't quite spit the directions at you as you were driving, but there, there's a, an ability to navigate on the fly that we have removed from uh, from the process, which I think is, I think it's an important, like the flexibility piece is an important thing for all of us, um, the students and us, because we have to be able to adjust on the fly to life. And that's not something that education is teaching us right now. <laughs> it's, it's, it's teaching us to do one thing, whatever the outcome is, you know. Um, but I kind of think there's just a little bit more of of reality in, well, let's try to do this and we'll see what happens and we'll adjust as needed. And if we change our mind halfway through, we can because we find something else to be more valuable. Like if, for example, a pandemic happens and we all have to shift course mid-semester. And then if we're only looking at one outcome to try to achieve, it makes that really challenging (laughs) when something out of all of our hands happens. And so I think, you know, what, what I found really fascinating was when the pandemic did sort of strike in the middle of spring semester, um, all of my courses were able to shift in ways that were responsive to student needs at that time. I have so many thoughts. (laughs) This is amazing. This is really, really making me think. My first thought is I've, I've taught improv and I've taught, uh, history and, and French and, and improv, it's easier to improv like that, that physical, when you're teaching someone a, a physical skill, which I imagine is, is the same with dance, there's that constant feedback. It's give this a try. I can see right away. Whereas with the academic stuff, how are you able to have that same interplay? So um, I, th- I think it's, it does take a little bit longer. I, um, I think it's similar. Like it's, if you think about the way that students respond in a, in a physical or an embodied class, 
you see it immediately because they, it's what they demonstrate. So if you look at it from an academic perspective, what are they, like, what are the avenues through which they have to demonstrate knowledge in an academic class? And if that's a paper or if that's a short writing assignment, or if that's a, um, like a presentation or whatever the, it's, it's in the assignments is where we see it. So I think the feedback loop, especially when you're not grading is, a, is, I, is my biggest challenge in all of this because I have to decide. I know it's, it's always frustrating when you're, let's think about it as a paper or an essay or something. Whenever you're reading student work, the question is always, there are so many things to say about this and I could just mark up the whole page and edit every word and line edit and then try to fix the you know, try to reorder the paragraphs or deal with the lack of um, structure to the paper or the, you know, uh, sort of thesis that's not quite forming accurately or properly or whatever. And I, I think those decisions about which feedback to give, what feedback to give when, and who, and, and which students can hear what elements of feedback at what time is the biggest challenge because you have to know your students so well and get a sense for how they will respond or might pick up on elements of your feedback. So for example, if we're talking about paper grading um, or paper feedbacking, feeding back, uh, I, I will really only give like one or two large overarching ideas when I read a paper a first draft of a paper, say, I'll send maybe, okay, so I think your organization is doing this and maybe it needs a little bit more of this. And I would like to see a little bit more of, you know, um, let's say, um, your introduction is getting too specific too soon. Like, like what's the, you know, or something, any, any feedback you would give a student on an assignment on a, on a paper, I'll give a couple of thoughts, but I think when we when we enter into that feedback process, we have to be really judicious about how much information they can take in at a time. Because what we don't want, of course, is to edit their paper, have them retype our edits into their paper and resubmit it as a second draft. Because they don't do any work in that regard. Like there's no, they're not the ones doing the thinking or doing the thinking for them. So I think when when we give feedback, that's that's where... I see the biggest challenge in this work, but it's also, it's also how it's how the conversation continues and it's how we know where to go next. When it comes to teaching dance, I imagine like a lot of other things, there's so much differentiation that is needed because everyone's coming from a, a different place of experience with very different bodies. Like one of the best advice I actually ever got about differentiation and, and really good feedback was to think not about teaching students in a classroom, but to think about teaching students how to do a, like you said, an embodied activity, because you really have to then think, okay, what are things I can get immediate feedback on? What are micro skills? What are macro skills? And then this, again, this idea of like, what are people bringing to the classroom that is different 
in terms of, of who they, they actually are and their capabilities. So how do you do that differentiation in a dance environment? The, you know, to me, their backgrounds are almost immediately visible in their bodies. Like when I see a student do certain kinds of uh, skills or do part of, part of the class, I can kind of get a sense for what they understand and what they don't. Um, and sometimes there are those students whose brains understand things that their bodies can't yet do. So, you know, so, a lot of times there's a little bit of a disconnect, but I, I also am usually aware that, that they know a lot of things that, that they can't communicate physically. Um, so I ask a lot of questions. <laughs> I, I just ask students, I'm, I'm really, um, kind of not afraid to not know things in classes. I find it uh, easier for students to come forward when they know that I'm curious about what they know. Um, so I'll, I'll ask, you know, how are you thinking about this particular step? Um, well, what would happen if you tried it this way? And that, you know, that's, that's sort of how I'll get in there and shape it. And it's like, well, and then you can kind of figure out where your perception and their perception are missing one another, like how they're maybe they've been misunderstanding you the whole time because they thought one thing and you thought something else. So I think a lot of a lot of getting on the same page with a student and figuring out how to address individual needs is really just figuring out what they know um, and what they don't. So I ask a lot of questions um, about students' perceptions of things. Um, to try to understand where they're coming from. Because then I can really say, oh, okay, well, if you think about it this way, maybe we can get this happening over here. You know, maybe it just, it's just another approach. And I always frame it that way because I never want a student to feel as though I am making a previous teacher or experience that they had that maybe they really valued. I don't ever want to come in and make them feel like that was wrong because I think that, you know, we get attached to our educational experiences. Um, and sometimes they really loved a particular teacher, even though maybe that teacher wasn't as informed as they could have been. Um, and so as I try to then reshape that knowledge base, I don't want to make it sound like I'm diminishing the importance of that teacher to that student's life. So I, I do try to frame it as, well, this is just another way to try it, try thinking about it. Um, so what if you, what if you try that? And sometimes it doesn't work. I mean, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I'm the one that's like clearly in the, in the wrong, but it's, um, it, it is a, I think it's a, it's how I treat like, the adults in my life too. It's, it's, it's not different at all. Um, it's how we get to know people. Is there a, a unit or lesson that you either pre-planned or maybe stumbled upon with the students that it is memorable in your mind? I, I, you know, it's funny. I, I've gotten so used to adapting to the room that I don't really have anything that's boxed in terms of like a fully prepared thing in advance that I would bring to this, the room, but I do have, um, a day. I always allocate a day in my dance history classes where we come into a conference room and 
on a big table, on the big conference table, I have a whole pile of um, archival materials that are all dance related. So old magazines, old newspapers um, from like the 1920s. And I've got a book from the 1890s that I've got stored away and it real sort of uh, materials that students don't really engage with anymore um, because everything is digital. So I do, I just, we just spend a day and it's like, well, let's look at what it means to look at an archive, look at a, a, at a real tangible material. How is this experience different from doing research with online materials? And I just leave it and see what they come up with. And sometimes they point things out and they're just absolutely shocked by, you know, the way things were a hundred years ago. Um, and they learn the context for the field in a pretty un, it, it's improvisational. Again, it's, it's not a, I don't really have a goal for it. Um, but I think it's an important day and it always ends up being really fun and surprising and the things that they, that they pick up on will vary from person to person and class to class. But I think it's important to really, especially, and you, you would know teaching history that like sometimes having your hands on the history is really important as much as learning about it in a sort of abstract way to really see a document from that moment. I think it's important to, to feel like, like that stuff is real and tangible. So I do like that day. It's always a fun day. Yeah. As you were talking, it really struck me because I was thinking like, well, how would, how would I would do that? Cause I, I, I've done that, you know, like dump a bunch of archival stuff and, but in my mind, I'm like, okay, well, there'd probably be like a, an organizer and there'd be questions that they'd have to ask. And like, I'd probably structure it or pair it with like, you know, another skill. And I'm like, how, how freeing is it just to be like, Hey, touch and talk, like grab something, look at it. And there's no bound structure around it. And like, yeah, some kids might goof off a little bit, but that's just what happens and that's life. But so maybe I didn't get to marry my idea of having, you know, a, a structured conversation using all five W's and an H with the archive, but how much more valuable is it to just like sit with that stuff? I really, I love that idea. And you're really making me unthink a lot of stuff that uh, I thought was necessary just in talking about taking so many, like you're still able to take so many boundaries off of what you do, but the learning is clearly still always happening. Sure. I mean, I think, I think if you think about it, like a, like a toddler, they're going to learn to walk and nobody's going to grade them for it. It's like it's, it, the learning is going to happen. It can, ha learning can happen without grades. I'm committed to that. Um, and I sometimes, uh, well, in the research on grading too, just is really clear that sometimes when you add this external element it actually diminishes student interest in what they're doing. Like, and I see it all the time with freshmen or first year students who come into the ballet program. They have danced their entire childhood up through high school. They have performed, they have done a thousand nutcrackers and they love ballet so much. And all of a sudden I say, well, now you're going to get graded for it. And they are paralyzed. They don't, it, it, it completely initiates this whole layer of, fear of judgment, uh, unwillingness to take risks because they're afraid that they're going to fail. There's a whole, I think, psychological element to grading that we don't usually think about. Um, and sometimes, 
in an effort to be transparent about grades, I think it comes from a well-meaning place, we institute all sorts of structures that don't necessarily need to be there. But I think because so much of education now has come from a place of like liability, (laughs) where like, we're worried that some student or their parent is going to push back and say, well, why did this B happen? You know, why did this student get a B? And it's, it's like, well, if you can justify it, you can grade it. Well, what if we just didn't do any of that? And actually looked at learning. And I think the learning that comes from the self-assessment is critical. Um, that's where, that's where my commitment to it is, is that what I've seen students understand about themselves as learners, like they may not be able to achieve a certain skill by the end of the semester that I have them for, but they can articulate very clearly why they weren't able to do it and what they can do in the future to make it happen. And that to me is like everything because you, uh, you understand why you're not understanding. You can, you know how to make it happen. It just is a, um, it's a different way of thinking about what we're doing, like what our goals are. Um, and I, I think given all of the stressors of the moment that we're in sort of socially and culturally and, uh, economically uh, and politically, we need to be really attuned to students' levels of stress and what is necessary and what is not. Um, what you know? How can we make school and education a place of freedom and liberation for every student that walks into your classroom, as opposed to a place where they're going to feel confined? And sometimes I think because even though we put students into grades and levels, they're, they're all in really different places. Um, so as much as we try to standardize material, it, it doesn't, oh, and we know this just from being in the classroom that you have some students who it's too easy for, and you have some students who are struggling mightily. What would happen if we got rid of, I, I'm, in, I'm in a less is more place right now. <laughs> you know, how, how much can we get rid of and still have learning happen? And for some of us, it's getting rid of our ego. The feeling of authority and holding on to authority is something that as individual teachers, we need to look at in ourselves. There have been some moments of discomfort where I have felt challenged by a student and I have to talk myself out of asserting my position because the student is actually learning something that's just not what I, (laughs) it's not what I expected. It's not what I was prepared for. And I, I didn't, I I didn't know how to handle that. And I, I just had to back up and say, okay, let's do it this way. I'll, I'll follow you. Show me where to go. And I, I think that is a, a process. But at the point I'm at now where I just have gotten used to being, the, like you said earlier, like a guide, I, I'm enjoying being the facilitator and the guide because I get to watch what they do. And I think if we let them do it, they will. Well, that seems like a really good place to end. This has been lovely. And like I said, it's given me so much to think about. If people want to find out more about you or what you do, is there, how can they find you? Um, the easiest place is probably my website. It's jessicazeller.net. Fantastic. Well, good luck in September. <laughs> Thanks. You too. <laughs> This 
episode will not self-destruct in five seconds, but will remain available on your preferred podcasting platform. Less Than Impossible is proud to be one of the many amazing school rubric podcasts. Links to resources or people we mentioned and information in general about the podcast can be found at lessonimpossible.com. If you enjoy the podcast, you can help other listeners discover it by rating and reviewing on iTunes, forwarding it to a colleague, or posting a link in your favorite educational chat. This has been Lesson Impossible, and I was your host, Aviva Levin. 